Thank you for tuning in to the WAM Podcast, where women empower women in business and manufacturing. Welcome to the latest episode of the WAM Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer McDally, CEO of the American Society of Safety Professionals and a Gallup Certified Strengths Coach. Joining us today is Rosa Correa, a leadership and culture expert. She's president of Correa and Associates and recently published a book, The Relationship Factor in Safety Leadership. Rosa, your book explains why business leaders should focus on building strong, healthy relationships because it helps them build trust with workers. And much of the latest research points to trust as a critical factor in engaging employees. In the book, you share eight core beliefs that are the foundation for high-performance safety organizations. Can you tell us some more about these beliefs? So the eight beliefs in my book reflect what I have experienced as the beliefs of successful leaders and what they believe about people. And these concepts are philosophical, but they were backed up by the research that I did in cognitive psychology, particularly that the beliefs that we have, which really expectations for people's performance, direct what we experience. And I remember when I was being trained to be a teacher, by the way, I was a kindergarten teacher in a former life. (laughs) (laughs) I was uh, taught that there had been experiments where teachers were told that some children were geniuses and other children were average. And the children who were labeled as geniuses inevitably ended up scoring much higher on their standardized tests even though they were normal children. So from there, further tests were conducted. They've held up over the decades that indeed uh, the teacher's expectation of the child determines their performance, in large part because we treat people differently when we have high expectations of them. And here we are in safety that what we would like most of all, because there's a lot of surveys that indicate that one of the things that leaders most would like is they would like employees who would stop another employee from taking an unsafe action. So we would like employees to own safety, to take that initiative to enforce safety or not necessarily enforce it, but to raise that awareness, not realizing that that is actually one of the scariest things that can possibly happen going to a peer, you know, a peer, let alone a boss, and to say, hey, I think you're making a mistake here, is actually one of the most difficult things a human being can do. And my book does go into quite a bit of that research and why that is true. And it has basically to do with the fact that our brains are structured to warn us of threats that might get us ostracized or kicked out of the tribe. And Going up to someone and telling them they're making a mistake or they shouldn't be doing something in a certain way is certainly one of the ways to get ostracized or kicked out of the tribe. So here we are asking people to do something that the brain interprets as a threat of physical violence or death. That really struck me when I saw that neuroscience. I said, wow, we cannot expect people to take these kinds of risks unless they feel pretty safe that they're going to be listened to and that their input is going to be valued. And that's when I came up with this belief, inclusion precedes accountability. 
if you want people to step up, if you want people to take the risk of correcting people, for example, in the case of nurses and doctors, right? There's a lot of evidence that shows that nurses will not speak up when they see a medical error in progress, precisely because they don't feel safe in speaking up or doing it. So if you want full engagement and you want full accountability, then your first step is to help people feel included. And we can talk about, you know, how to do that later on, if you like, because I think that's probably one of the most important, I guess, skills and responsibilities of the leader is to help people feel they belong, to help them feel they're included. So let's circle back to that question in a little bit. There are a couple other beliefs I'd like to unpack, but I do hear that constant theme of trust, that it needs to be a safe space for somebody to be willing to confront, because you're absolutely right. None of us want to be the one, quote, voted off the island, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. One of your other beliefs is that people are able and willing to contribute to the success of the enterprise. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, as a certified strengths coach, I live from an anchor of positive intent. And then everybody shows up mm -hmm. every single day wanting to contribute, wanting to have an impact, wanting to be a good participant in what is the community of the world of work. So talk a little bit, if you could, about how people are able and willing to then lead that culture if they're empowered to do so. Yes, well, it also comes from that idea, uh, the expectations that you have of people. This is tied in very closely with that, because if you believe that people are capable and willing to contribute, you're going to ask them to participate. You're going to ask for their input. And I've seen this have remarkable results. One of the stories that comes to my mind is when I was working at Lawrence Livermore Labs with their maintenance department. And Bernie Manamore was the director of maintenance at that time. And he had been, he and his safety team had been very frustrated because employees kept disregarding the machine guarding. And so they would come up with different ways to prevent the disabling of the machine guards. So when we began working together and we brought up this notion of employee empowerment and getting employees involved in the solution of the problem, he said, okay. He was one of these rare people that just said, okay, even though he had never tried it before, he just decided to put together a team of employees with an advisor from the safety team to come up with the ideas of how to solve this problem. And within a month, they had solved the problem. The machine guards were no longer being disregarded. And it had cost them a lot less money than the road that they had been pursuing. It's a great example of if you ask people to contribute, I guess that asking them to contribute is not enough. You actually have to use their ideas and you have to make them feel valued and you have to make them feel that they are real contributors to the success of your organization. Again, I think that's really important for everyone to understand, especially in this changing world of work that we see where individuals, you know, don't stay at the same place for as long as they used to. That just is creating an entirely different set of cultures and skills, certainly for safety professionals and the roles that they play. One other belief I'd like to spend a little bit of time on, and then I want to make sure I circle it back to what we need to make sure our safety professionals all understand. And that's really, and you mentioned at the top end, our beliefs and experiences. So your seventh belief, our prejudgments and biases 
can prevent us from finding the truth in what we see and hear. That sounds very mm-hmm. applicable to our safety professionals. Help me understand what that means and and how we pay attention to that in keeping everybody safe. Yes. Well, I think perhaps, again, there was a case where doctors in the emergency room did not report cases of child abuse. They were just not reporting them. And it wasn't that they didn't see the injuries. It was later discovered. It was that they could not conceive of a parent injuring their own child. So even though they were presented with this evidence of these children coming in with these repeat injuries, they could not go to the connect of what the cause was because they couldn't believe that a parent would do this. Carl Wake, who's one of my favorite writers in this area, wrote, um, a system's willingness to become aware of problems is associated with its ability to act on them. And so I think it goes one step further even than what I'm talking about, which is the actual ability to recognize. But when they interviewed the doctors, it was like, well, even if I recognized that it was child abuse, what would I do about it? And because they did not know what they would do about it, they did not act on it. On the other hand, when social workers were brought into the emergency room and they became active, the issues were handled because the social workers knew what to do about it. And I think as a safety professional, there are so many things that happen in the area of human relationships, human emotions, difficult people to work with. I know a lot of safety professionals that I've worked with, like they tend to stay in their office or they tend not to want to go into the area of the emotional turmoil or the emotional issues. They don't want to really go out and hear from employees, you know, some of their frustrations or what's going on, because what am I going to be able to do about it? I'm not going to be able to spend the kind of money that they expect me to spend to solve those issues. Most likely when I come back with my list of things that need to be fixed to management, I'm going to get a rejection on it. Therefore, I'm not even going to go out and ask questions. I'm not even going to go out and have conversations or form relationships. I'll just stay in my office. I'll stay with my rules. I'll stay with my audits because those are things that I know how to do and things that I know work. And I think that is a really huge restriction, our prejudgment about what we can do and what we can't do and whether we're going to be listened to or not listened to, what is our true area of responsibility, can keep a safety professional from really achieving their full potential and their ability to make a difference in the workplace. Is this making sense? It absolutely does. And I'll frame it from an ASSP perspective. You know, we're very active with NIOSH and the the efforts around what is sort of coined total worker health and how individuals show up on the job for a period of time, yet who they are and how they show up back to that compassionate leader. Another thing I firmly believe in, you have to understand what people are going through and how that influences behavior in the work. You know, we are one person every single day. And I do think this convergence of individuals in the world of work and total worker health is becoming more and more a functional responsibility for safety professionals. So I 
understand that in your circles, do you see more conversations? Because in the conversations I'm having with CEOs, a talent workforce centric approach really seems to be at the heart of what CEOs are worrying about today. Yes, I have seen in the conversation and also in, in the recent research that that's considered one of the biggest issues or problems that they're confronting right now, the retention, and also the fact that specifically the millennials are not motivated by the same things that older generations are motivated by. I find that to be a kind of a plus because the things that do motivate them are finding meaning and purpose in their work. And I think that safety is one of those areas where we can leverage meaning and purpose. We have to broaden the meaning of safety. It's not just physical safety, it's psychological safety. And the psychological safety appears to be even along with physical safety, but it appears to be at the foundation of being able to talk about it or to bring issues or to form those relationships, which are going to be so critical to making changes in the workplace. So psychological safety, I'm really thrilled with how it has come to the forefront as a fundamental issue, just as important as physical survival, as food. It means so much to know that if people don't feel that they belong, if they don't feel valued, it's just as bad as not paying them or not providing them with a safe environment to work in physically. And I think that's very hard for people to wrap their mind around, that the two are so intertwined. Yeah, I think they are. So my last question to you for our OSH professionals is this new approach, what should they be mindful of as they begin to improve their practices day in and day out? Well, I think you have to begin to experiment with forming relationships all up and down the organization with managers, with your peers, with employees, to begin to develop the social network that you need to be effective. I realize that there are individual contributors who will do fine, you know, doing their research or where they don't need to communicate or to influence anybody. In that case, you're probably okay to just be on your own and only worry about your individual contributions. But for the rest of us that have taken on the responsibility to make people aware of, you know, what is going to get them in trouble, make them aware of the risks, make them aware that they're putting other people at risk. And that goes for all the levels because managers need to be influenced as much as employees um, doing the work need to be influenced to make the decisions that are going to be the right ones for the organization. So I say we have to begin to build that network. So then the question is, how are you going to do that? Perhaps, like I know when I was younger, I did experience rejection, trying to reach out without uh, having any credibility, especially when you're a younger person, you haven't really established that you have the experience to be discussing risk with individuals or how they should be approaching their job. I understand those things, but I want to tell a story that really motivated me in this area, which was one of the most successful supervisors that I have ever met in the nuclear industry in forming relationships shared his story that when he was a young man 
his father, who was an electrician, would come home and complain endlessly about the engineers and the safety people and how they were always coming around and telling him how to do his job and what he was doing wrong. And so he grew up uh, with this in his mind, this picture in his mind of all of these arrogant people, you know, just disregarding his father's experience. And ironically, he himself became an engineer when he grew up. And he found himself working in the nuclear industry, which in a lot of cases has a lot of we, they, uh, and lack of trust in those types of organizations. And he decided that he was going to approach his job in a completely different way and learn from what had happened to his father. So when he came on board, he went out and he spoke with each of the individuals in his area and got to know them with questions like, oh, you know, I really don't know how any of this works. I just graduated from college, but I don't really understand the work. And I really need you to teach me what's important here, what's safe, what's not safe. And he made his way around till he felt that he was grounded in how people viewed the work. And out of this, he said, what would happen is that when he needed something from the workers, like a set of plans or a job that needed to be done, they would be done immediately. And all his peers in the engineering department would have to wait for weeks as they had to go through all the bureaucracy and the protocols to get the same paperwork or to get the same jobs done. I find that to be such a great story where uh, trust and open communication establishing of those relationships just broke right through that bureaucracy and helped him get his job done as well as achieving a greater level of safety. So that's what I would encourage in terms of safety professionals is some of you I know because I, I have met a lot of them and I correspond with a lot of safety professionals that already do their job in that way. But for young people coming in or those uh, folks that have experienced a lot of frustration, I think you need to go out there and you need to try it and start where you feel the safest. Start uh, having those conversations and learning from other individuals. Just go out there and ask questions. Don't be the expert. That's the place to start. I think that is sound advice and pulling forward a couple of themes. And, you know, it's all about relationships. Let's start there to our safety professionals, the need to build their social networks, find a safe space mm -hmm. to start to be vulnerable in asking questions and inquisitive mm -hmm. in how they drive to answers. Rosa, I can't thank you enough for joining us on the WAM podcast. We appreciate your insight on this important topic and how leaders can learn to develop more meaningful connections with their teams. To learn more about the American Society of Safety Professionals, visit our website at ASSP.org. You can also find information about Rosa's book, The Relationship Factor in Safety Leadership, in our online store. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at ASSP Safety, and please subscribe to the ASSP and WAM podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Rosa, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining the WAM podcast, where women empower other women in business and manufacturing. For more shows like this, go to whampodcast.com. That's whampodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.